3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy.
0: And I'm Deblina Charkraborty.
3: And when we talked about the Prince of Humbug, P.T. Barnum, recently, we really focused on what a diverse career he had. He wasn't all about the circus that, of course, didn't even come along until he was in his 60s and was long after he had already established his name. And he also ran menageries. He managed a museum filled with waxworks and taxidermy animals. And he had hoaxes like the Fiji mermaid. Early in his career, He staged minstrel shows and other, quote, low forms of entertainment. And later, he, of course, mounted freak shows like Ten in One and even took a swing at some kind of highbrow entertainment, acting as an impresario for a famous European opera singer.
0: He did a lot of stuff. He did. So today we're going to visit a few stages of Barnum's career, taking a closer look at the acts that made him famous and seeing how some of his performers could become incredibly famous and successful themselves. But since we'll be starting with some of Barnum's most famous, quote, freaks, before moving on to more conventional and animal stars, it might be good to discuss that strange combination of exploitation and success that existed in the sideshow world of the 1800s. I mean, the fact that some freak show stars did achieve success might be surprising to modern audiences, because today it can actually be really disturbing to read the details of many of Barnum's prized acts, especially the ones involving people with physical disabilities. It really
3: can be. I mean, everything seems wrong about exhibiting a six-year-old Burmese girl and allowing audience members to touch her just because she had hair covering her body, as Barnum did in fact do with Krau Farini, who was billed as the missing link. And some stories from Barnum's contemporaries are really just plain tragic. Theodore Lent, for instance, who toured Europe with another hair-covered woman, this time Mexican-born Julia Pastrana, eventually married her but when she died after having their stillborn baby lent had both of them mummified and continued to exhibit them
0: but for some of these stars a disability or an unusual skill actually really did bring fame and fortune with many of the biggest names finding a way to separate their stage identity as so-called freaks from their off-stage identities as normal business people and performers One of Barnum's hit acts, Isaac W. Sprague, the American human skeleton, who weighed only 43 pounds, was as much of a marketing man as Barnum himself. He wrote an autobiography, and he sold trading cards, and all the profits went to him.
3: Yeah, and the the trading card business was a big deal for a lot of these performers, because whereas the showmen would get a cut of their performances, they could pocket all that money from the trading cards. And according to Laura Grand in History Magazine, Barnum, quote, built a strong rapport with the majority of his freaks in the U.S. And to me, that made sense. It it seems like it would be a bad idea to do otherwise because with so much competition from other showmen, it would be bad business to alienate your performers. And we're going to see some of that, what kind of alienation can happen there with our first entry on this list. But the first act that we're going to discuss kicked off the heyday of small American freak shows and really set a standard, too, for sideshow performers making serious money and living lives that were also completely apart from their work on stage. So... Ladies and gentlemen, Chang and Ang Bunker.
0: These first entries on our list were associated with Barnum, but probably less so than some of the later acts that we're going to discuss. But still, they could be the names that you're most likely to recognize today, because Chang and Ang Bunker, Sarah mentioned, they were the original Siamese twins, which meant, basically, that was the first time that the word Siamese twin, or the term Siamese twin, was used to describe this particular condition. Exactly. They were born May eleventh, 1811, on a houseboat in Siam, which is now Thailand, and they were connected from birth by a band of tissue between their chests and stomachs. Their umbilical cord fed into this band, and when they were born, they were twisted so that they faced different directions.
3: So their mother sort of untwisted that band almost so that each baby faced the same direction. If you see pictures of them, they just look like two guys standing next to each other. And as they grew, she really encouraged them to be as active. As possible. They could run, they could swim, something that's very amazing. They could fight each other, which they did a lot too, and they could maneuver the houseboat that they lived on too. And they would also work on stretching that band a little bit, stretching it enough so that eventually they could each stand relatively upright and they would usually pose with their arms around each other's shoulders.
0: They were healthy too and they survived smallpox the uh, same outbreak that killed three of their other siblings. And when their father died when they were eight, they helped support their family by raising ducks, while their unique medical condition earned them an audience before the king of Siam. And Interestingly, the king's predecessor had briefly considered having them executed when he learned of their existence. He changed his mind. He
3: decided there was nothing threatening about them, but still a close call for little Chang and Ang there. Each boy, of course, also had a completely separate identity. Chang was considered to be very outgoing, kind of had a quick temper. Ang was considered to be very thoughtful, introspective. And right away, this was something that distinguished them from earlier conjoined twin acts, like the Colorado brothers from early 17th century Genoa, which was an act that featured Lazarus and his smaller, incomplete twin, who couldn't speak, he couldn't really control his own movements. It was basically Lazarus that was in charge. The draw with Chang and Eng was that they were each so independent in a way, so distinct. And their distinct personalities combined with their cooperative coordination eventually caught the eye of Scottish merchant Robert Hunter, who partnered up with a Captain Abel coffin to exhibit the boys. In
0: 1829, they bought the nearly grown teens from their mother. And according to Holly Martin in the Journal of of American culture, they were billed as quote, the monster, and then quote, the Siamese double boys. And they were pretty much a hit from the start. At first, they also felt comfortable with their working arrangement, because they'd get what they saw as a fair cut of what was made, the profits, and they'd invest in their own act by adding tricks like flips and somersaults.
3: Making the show a little more exciting
0: for folks. But in
3: 1831, Coffin took soul management, and the brothers, who were displeased by their take, he reduced what they were making significantly, they decided to ditch their management. They left Coffin and managed themselves. and This started a very profitable stage in their career. They met Barnum, they briefly worked at his museum. The three men apparently didn't get along that well, so they left Barnum and just continued to rake it in, touring the U.S., Cuba, Canada, Europe, and even eventually earned enough to retire from show business to North Carolina and buy a farm, and they also at that point became naturalized citizens
0: and took the last name Bunker. Chang soon began courting Adelaide Yates, the daughter of a neighboring Quaker family, while Aang courted her sister Sarah. Neighbors were not... In favor of this, they protested it because it was doubly scandalous to them. Conjoined twins who were also ethnically Chinese and from Siam, it just wasn't something that the neighborhood approved of. Not at all. They even smashed out windows in the Yates family home. But the two couples were married anyway in 1843. And while at first they all shared one home, after a few years, Chang and Ang set up their own houses in Mount Airy, which is interestingly, the real Mayberry. Andy
3: Griffith's hometown.
0: Their houses were about a mile and a half away from each other.
3: And so to do this, they obviously had to set up a different kind of arrangement. And Chang and Ang, since they couldn't separate from each other, would spend three days with one wife and one family in one house. And then they would go to the other brother's house and spend three days there. And each twin would be the master of his own household. So the twin who wasn't living there would sort of you know, keep his own opinions to himself for three days and then expect that of his brother. But the whole master of the household thing really has extra significance, considering that Chang and Aang also owned 33 slaves between them. I mean, they owned quite a bit of land and they had quite a few slaves working on it, something that I think often surprises people about them, but in a way fit into this normalcy they were trying to achieve as large landowners, which at the time in North Carolina might have meant slaveholders. too. So they were
0: trying to fit in with that? Seems like it. Chang and Adelaide ultimately had ten kids while Ang and Sarah had nine and the whole family was primarily engaged in farm work but the brothers would still pick up extra cash by touring now and again sometimes with the wife and the kids in tow and their early performances had emphasized their conjoined state but also their Chinese heritage and in these later shows they always appeared in western clothes and they wanted to emphasize that normalcy that you mentioned Sarah. There were farmers with wives and big families and that's how they wanted to be seen. Just like you, but obviously not quite. So after the Civil War
3: and after emancipation, Chang and Aang didn't have any money anymore. They were broke. They couldn't farm the farm, and they returned to show business more fully, even going back to Barnum, who employed them until they were over 60 years old. In 1874, Chang, who had become a heavy drinker and who had suffered from a stroke, died of bronchitis. And before a doctor could arrive to separate the two brothers, Ang died. At the time, I think the diagnosis was that he had died of shock, which it would be rather shocking, I'm sure. But later analysis Suggest that he probably died of blood loss because they did share an artery and Ang may have just been pumping blood and not having it pumped back into his body since
0: Chang was dead at that point. And they didn't know that until later, right, that they shared an artery? I think it was in the,
3: or they, they realized they shared an artery after the autopsy, but they didn't come up with this idea until the
1: 1960s.
0: It's interesting, too, that the brothers had long sought out separation and had nearly attempted surgery in Philadelphia after they got engaged. They were each willing to die if it meant a chance to live independently. But their wives stepped in. The wives begged them not to risk the surgery. They didn't want them to die.
3: So like we said, Chang and Eng aren't super associated with Barnum, but the next entry on our list certainly is. In 1842, P.T. Barnum met the boy who would become his most famous star, Charles Stratton, who was the four-year-old son of a Bridgeport carpenter. And when Stratton was born, he was a pretty large baby. He was about nine pounds. But before he was even one year old, he basically stopped growing. And by the time he met Barnum, he was four years old, 15 pounds, and 25 inches tall. After his teens, he did grow a little bit more. He reached 40 inches, ultimately, and 70 pounds. But he had a fairly small stature
0: for much of his life. Though Stratton was Barnum's distant cousin, he drafted him for a show, calling him General Tom Thumb and teaching him how to sing and dance and do imitations of people like Hercules and having him pretend to be 11 years old rather than 5 so that his small stature would be even more impressive. Barnum started Stratton out on $3 a week, but as the little boy proved to be kind of a natural performer with, as Barnum said, quote, A keen sense of the ludicrous, he raised Charles's rate to $50 a week. So in
3: 1844, Barnum and Stratton left for Europe, where they would do these sellout shows in London's Egyptian Hall. And Barnum, as we discussed in the earlier episode, was always hankering for more prestige, not just more money. He wasn't just about money. He was interested in prestige and a wider audience. And that was something he really did get through Tom Thumb when Baroness Rothschild heard about the act and invited the two over for dinner. And the dinner alone was an achievement for Barnum, but he used it as an opportunity for stirring up some humbug, like (laughs) like he always did. He dropped hints that the general, General Tom Thumb, might like to meet Queen Victoria, and soon enough, an invitation to meet the Queen did arrive.
0: According to Peter Carlson in American History, before Stratton could enter with Barnum, they got some very specific instructions. This was upon their visit to the Queen. They were told not to speak directly to the Queen and not to turn their backs. They were escorted into the Queen's picture gallery and presented before a 25-year-old Victoria, her husband, Prince Albert, and the court. And Barnum later described the entry as such. He said, quote, "'The general walked in looking like a wax doll gifted with the power of locomotion. The general advanced with a firm step, and as he came within hailing distance, made a very graceful bow and exclaimed, "'Good evening, ladies and gentlemen.'" So before a
3: performance where he exhibited his impressions, apparently the British really loved his Napoleon <laughs> impression, Victoria spent some personal time with the little boy. They walked hand in hand around the gallery. She told him about the pictures, asked him about things he liked. And he even asked her, this is Very cute. He asked her if he could meet her three-year-old son, the Prince of Wales. She tells him, no, he's asleep right now.
0: They do ultimately meet, though. When it came time for them to leave, Tom kind of dramatically fended off one of Victoria's poodles with his cane. It was sort of like the sword fight pantomime, and I think there's an engraving of it, right?
3: Yeah, I might have to put that one up on Pinterest at some point.
0: Victoria's impressions of the night, though, are particularly interesting since she was clearly bothered a bit by what she found to be troubling about this act. And what we might consider to be troubling today, too. Exactly. A very young boy away from his parents and performing around the world for money. And uh, she saw this, as as you said, as we would see it. She wrote, quote, After dinner, we saw the greatest curiosity I, or indeed anybody, ever saw, a little dwarf. He made the funniest little bow, putting out his hand and saying, Much obliged, ma'am. One cannot help feeling sorry for the poor little thing and wishing he could be properly cared for. For the people who show him off tease him a good deal, I should think. He was made to imitate Napoleon and do all sorts of tricks.
3: So that's sort of the perception that folks had, I guess, of Stratton when he was... So young, five years old, six years old, working under Barnum. But as he got older, the relationship between him and Barnum did clearly become more one of business partners with Stratton making a good living and creating a life for himself off the stage. Laura Grand wrote that Stratton, quote, made his stage persona a caricature, completely separate from his identity as Charles Stratton. He was able to shed his guise of Tom Thumb at the end of each day.
0: Not that his personal life and stage career didn't intersect at times. Probably the most famous event in Stratton's life was his 1863 marriage to Lavinia Warren, a little person from Middleborough, Massachusetts, with Mayflower ancestors. And Lavinia called the, quote, Queen of Beauty in the New York Times write-up of their marriage, and Stratton were married at Grace Episcopal Church in New York City with people like the Astors and the Vanderbilts in attendance. And during their honeymoon, they even got to visit the White House. It
3: was con- considered to be one of the biggest celebrity marriages of the century. So, Our next act moves away from the kind of sideshow entertainments that Barnum was best known for. While he was visiting London to such great acclaim with little Tom Thumb, he happened to hear about a singer who was selling out shows in England and Ireland, Jenny Lind, who is better known as the Swedish Nightingale. And Barnum, who didn't even bother to attend one of her shows or request some sort of sample performance, pitched Lind on this 150-date U.S. tour with a guarantee of $1,000 per show. It was apparently a pretty unheard of sum at the time. So Lynn did negotiate for a little bit more, though. She was very charitably minded, and she negotiated with Barnum to make some further donations on top of that to charities of her choosing. She did eventually, though, agree and left Liverpool in August of 1850 for her big American tour.
0: Just a little background on Lynn. She was born in Stockholm in 1820 and was already a European star. Charlotte Bronte, in fact, was a huge fan, according to Cassandra Fell in Bronte Studies. And she had debuted in Sweden in 1838 and had studied opera in Paris, where she perfected her coloratura and became known for her range, stretching from the B below middle C to high G. And when she teamed up with Barnum, she actually had been considering leaving the stage. He really made her an offer. (laughs) She couldn't refuse, though. So for
3: six months leading up to that big U.S. debut, Barnum stirred up his humbug again, even though in this case, Lynn's talents really did prove to be much more than hype. He would write articles about how beautiful she was, how sweet and good she was, was, he would run these poetry contests like pitch us your best poem about Jenny Lind. And he ultimately stirred up what was called Lindomania. People were just so excited to hear this young woman sing, even though they were just going on his word
0: for it. And uh, I mean, it worked. His tactics really worked. There were more than 30,000 people waiting for her steamer when it arrived in New York. 20,000 more lined the route to her hotel. And Barnum wasn't stingy with this either, with with her after seeing how successful that she was. After finally hearing her. (laughs) Right, and realizing how good she was. He renegotiated her contract after just a few shows. But he made out pretty well, too. He probably made close to a half a million dollars that year.
3: And it did give him some of that legitimacy that he was hoping for. He was working with a famous opera singer here. It was different from his American Museum kind of performances he normally promoted. Other people made a lot of money off of Jenny Lind too, though. When we mentioned her in the last episode, we talked about how she was just this huge merchandising sensation, one of the earliest sensations of that magnitude. And people marketed porcelain around her. You could get Jenny Lind hats and face cream, sheet music. That's maybe the thing that makes the most sense here: pianos, chairs, and even a crib. Which I did a little Google searching earlier today. The Jenny Lind crib is still a very well-known type of crib. It looks exactly how you would imagine a baby's crib to look.
0: Nothing old-fashioned about it. So you can still pick one up, I guess. You can. After her Grand U.S. tour, Lind married her accompanist, Otto Goldschmidt, and lived in Dresden in England, where she eventually taught at the Royal College of Music before she died in 1887. So, our final entry is a very different one from this classic opera singer. It rivals only Tom Thumb as Barnum's most famous act, and even today you probably associate Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus with elephants. But Jumbo was the original and the most famous elephant of them all.
3: So Jumbo had been captured in East Africa when he was four years old and was purchased by a Bavarian animal collector. He started out his public life, though, in Paris at the Jardin de Plantes, And ironically, considering his eventual size, I mean, you can get a good idea of it by his name. um, His Paris owners were really disappointed with how tiny he was. And according to Bill Kelly in American History, they didn't realize that African elephants grow more slowly than Indian elephants do. And so they thought they just had a dud of an elephant. He was not as big as they were hoping. So after they traded him for a rhino, the African elephant wound up in London, where he was named Jumbo, which they believed meant elephant, and he started to grow, eventually got up to 11 and a half feet tall.
0: And Jumbo spent most of his life there. He entertained kids who visited the zoo, and even gave rides. Barnum, on one of his England visits, coveted him. He said, quote, I have often looked wistfully on Jumbo, but with no hope of ever getting possession of him, as I know him to be a great favorite of Queen Victoria, whose children and grandchildren are among the tens of thousands of British juveniles whom Jumbo has carried on his back, I did not suppose he would ever be sold. Finally, though, knowing that Jumbo's temper had worsened lately, his British owners unloaded him on Barnum. Didn't tell him about the temper problem. Like we have an
3: angry elephant on, on our hands. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, but he sold him for $10,000 to Barnum.
3: So the British public, though, was very upset about this. They were mad. I mean, think of the children who loved Jumbo so much. And Jumbo's keeper, Matthew Scott, remembered people actually picketing the zoo and thousands of kids lining up to see Jumbo just crying their hearts out and It was too bad for them because Barnum was going to be taking his $10,000 elephant back to the States. And in 1882, he had Jumbo and his elephant friend from the zoo named Alice put on board a ship. Um, Poor Jumbo here. He did not enjoy his transatlantic trip at all. He was apparently very seasick and apparently had daily beer rations. I can't imagine... That's in a normal elephant's
0: rations today. Mm, yeah, well, probably <laughs> not. But it's sad that he just didn't get unlimited beer if he needed it. <laughs> Poor thing. One stateside, side, Jumbo helped make Barnum's new circus a hit, also helping transform the three-ring circus to something more akin to what it is today, which is, of course, kind of a spectacle. He even grew some more, and his temper issues disappeared. So Barnum didn't have to worry about that after all.
3: Well, and Barnum also pulled another Jenny Lind and marketed his new elephant like crazy. You could buy Jumbo everything. I don't know about Jumbo face cream or Jumbo cribs, (laughs) he applied the elephant's name to all sorts of products. And eventually, Jumbo became ubiquitous enough to mean very large. I mean, that's how we think of it today. Something is Jumbo size. So... Then after four seasons with the circus, where Jumbo had certainly earned back his $10,000 and really helped make Barnum's circus a hit, he was killed in an 1885 railway accident. And he and Barnum's tiniest elephant, strangely also named Tom Thumb, were crossing some railroad tracks with their keeper, and an unexpected engine came speeding through. It knocked Tom Thumb out of the way. He rolled down an embankment, and Jumbo just panicked, and he tried to run, but he was hit by the train in a crash that also killed the engineer. Barnum, who had kind of hedged his bets for a while and seen about, whether Jumbo's hide and skeleton could be preserved. I think he wrote about it like, God forbid anything ever happens to Jumbo, but just in case. So he did have a plan in place, and he had the elephant's skeleton and hide saved and set up this big funeral procession, even spinning a whole story that Jumbo had died trying to push the baby Tom Thumb out of the way of the train. He
0: was a hero. So while the hide was eventually destroyed in a fire, Jumbo's skeleton can sometimes be seen in the American Museum of Natural History. So you can still check that out now and again. Pay your respects
3: to Jumbo. So it's been fun talking about these different acts. And it's been interesting, too, coming across all the names that you can find just a little tidbit of information on. These are obviously all pretty well-documented, pretty well-researched figures because they were so famous. But there are so many names, you just get the most tantalizing... Little peek at what their life must have been like.
0: Yeah, but still very interesting to find out about. And we actually have some articles to this effect on our website, don't we? I know we have one on female sideshow. We freaks. do.
3: Kristen wrote an article on famous female sideshow freaks, which features Joyce Heth, who was in our last episode on P.T. Barnum, and Tom Thumb's wife, too. So a few few folks in there. Yeah, and
0: there are photos in there too, so if you're really curious about how these people looked, um, we tried to describe them as best we could, but you can check them out by checking out that article. But if you know of some other Sideshow Acts that we left out, maybe you have some favorites that you'd like us to cover in the future, you can definitely write us and recommend those. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com and you can write us there and tell us all about what you want us to cover, or just comment on any of the issues surrounding these acts that we discussed or you know, just comment on any of the details we shared. You can also look us up on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History.
3: And like I just mentioned, we do have a stuffy Mist in History class Pinterest account too, which I've pinned a few photos on there and I can do some more so you can check out what some of these folks look like. You can see I think Tom Thumb's house. He had this great mansion. All sorts of interesting visual details about their lives. And again, if you want to learn more about some other female sideshow acts, we do have that article. It's called 10 Famous Female Sideshow Freaks. And you can search for that on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
1: This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit LambdaLegal.org. That's LambdaLegal.org.
0: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual.